0: Welcome to the World Art Now podcast. Exploring the world through the material culture of its people, in association with Michael Backman Limited. Hi, it's Michael Backman and uh, I'm here with Sarah Corbett and we are going to discuss a very interesting topic, which is Chinese export silver. Chinese export silver has become very popular in recent years. It's very in vogue uh, amongst collectors and prices are rocketed and, and so on. And this is quite fascinating because I remember, and you probably do too, uh, Sarah, a, a couple of years ago, when you could barely give the things away. Uh, I even remember once being in an auction room where someone was pointing out a, a lovely Chinese export silver teapot on the floor of the auction room and someone was pointing it out with their foot and saying this stuff is wonderful you know look at the quality but no one wants it and as as uh, she said that she was kicking it along the floor now uh, it would probably be on the on the front page of the auction catalogue on, on the cover uh, so one of the things that has really uh, undercut this huge interest in, uh, in Chinese export silver has been obviously the, the, the growth in China itself and, and demand coming from Chinese buyers mainland Chinese buyers and even this is interesting in itself because I I do remember several years ago explaining to some museum uh, curators from China when I was showing them some Chinese export silver that this actually was made in China and and they they refused to believe it and they said no we've never seen this in China Uh,
1: I think the forms aren't always traditionally Chinese forms and maybe there's
0: uh, no, possibly that's, that's right, uh, although I think they thought it was so they, they were thinking it was possibly made outside of China uh, in a Chinese style. But and, and they kept saying to me no, we've never seen this in China. And then I said, I made the point, well of course not because it was made for export. So very little of it was actually made for the local market, particularly of the style that we know as Chinese export silver. Of course in China itself, uh, uh, things were made in, uh, in 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 silver for local usage, but not in the forms that we're familiar with uh, outside of China in the West.
1: The the forms and the decor are definitely to the taste of a Western market. In, um,
0: indeed, yes. Uh, the, uh, which is why we you know we have full teapots uh, or tea sets uh, you know with a milk jug and 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 so on. Of course, they never had that in China because they don't drink milk with their tea. It's
1: just not the cultural way to do it. So clearly, it's a very unique type of decorative art so how could we begin to recognize a piece of chinese export silver what is it and when did it become a product which was available to people visiting china
0: yes uh, most uh, existing chinese export silver really dates to the 19th century and probably to the, to the latter part uh, there's very little that, that's genuine that, it, that is much earlier and uh, a lot of the makers when, when they really got going, got uh, into production in, in southeast uh, China and Hong Kong around say 1870, 1860, there's, there's not too much that's earlier. And uh, then you had European companies coming and ordering it uh, for, for export to, um, to Europe and also to the United States, which is why you, you see a lot of it in the US as well, because it was being made directly in China China, and, and then sent straight away to, to New York and, and so on, where often it was retailed through important department stores in the same way that it was being retailed through department stores in, in say, the UK or, or, or Germany and, and, and so on. Uh, so, Typically what, what you see are uh, European or Western forms, but with Chinese motifs. And this became really quite popular, so, and the Chinese motifs would be dragons or typical Chinese flowers such as the flowers of the Four Seasons, you know, peonies, chrysanthemums, and, and so on. And then these sorts of uh, decorations were, were applied uh to to conventional items such as tea sets and vases and and uh biscuit barrels and and these sorts of things little salts and 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 so on uh and uh one of the reasons why uh the whole market took off was because uh the uh, europeans were wanting to trade with china and and sell the chinese things and so on and an awful lot of uh uh spanish dollars and, and so on uh fled uh, or flowed rather flowed into china and and so this gave china a huge quantity of silver which previously uh china hadn't had that there's very few local suppliers of silver in in china
1: so your raw materials for these beautiful products come as the payment for other trade items absolutely
0: as coins yes and yes
1: so they're being traded for what <clears throat> within China at this point in time, at, at that
0: time it was it was silks, it, it was um, uh, uh, tea, of course. Uh, yeah, the tea trade there massive. So huge, huge
1: amounts of silver resource would have become available. For indeed,
0: indeed, and 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 furniture and other things, uh, all, all manner of things. And and what's also interesting is that the the silver uh, originally uh, was was being mined in South America. And of course, when when the Spanish and the Portuguese discovered South America. Uh, <clears throat> this opened up a huge quantity of, of, uh, of, of, of um, silver mines and, and, and so on, and at the time most currencies in the world were backed with either silver or gold or a combination, and this was incredibly expansionary of, of world trade because suddenly the money supply exploded and then the quantity of silver that was available uh, exploded. And this led to an incredible uh, facilitation of of world trade with, uh, you know, utilising wooden sailing ships. And so we had the thing called the galleon trade, whereby ships would go, say, from Mexico or or from Bahia in in South America uh, over to to Europe and and across to, say, India and and Manila and, and so on. And this led to an incredible sort of currency flow and bullion flow of silver. And so uh, through this way, there there are incredible injections of of silver into both Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia, i.e. China, in the way that had never happened before. And for a while, um, silver was actually so rare that uh, in some parts of Asia, particularly in, in say, the 16th and 17th centuries, it was actually selling for even more than, than gold was
1: it was a rare commodity Mm. until the point that trade once more brings the exchange and brings the possibility for this beautiful type of silverware to become a trade option once more alongside the teas the silks and the spices yes yes
0: yes um and and so um the main markets for, for Chinese export silver really were uh, in Europe, and of course, and, and the United States. And then we, we also have the interesting phenomenon of, of uh, Chinese-looking silver pieces, which come from Southeast Asia. And this has led to quite a complication, because uh, today it's the case that a lot of uh, pieces made from silver, and they'll, they'll have uh, Chinese stamps on, on the bottom, Chinese ideograms and so on, and um, because they were made by local Chinese but they weren't made in China itself. Uh, When you look at a lot of the populations of Southeast Asia, say Malaysia for example or, or what was the Malay Peninsula, Around thirty uh, percent of of Malaysia's population is ethnically Chinese. If you look at Thailand, uh, it, it's um, a, a similarly high proportion, maybe twenty percent. And then if you look at, say, Bangkok, uh, most people living in Bangkok today, most Thai people have some Chinese blood in in them. I mean, even the royal family has uh, Chinese ancestors, and, and so on. Uh, there are many former prime ministers of Thailand who are actually full, fully ethnic Chinese. In Indonesia, about three or four percent of the population is ethnically Chinese, and, and so a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the, the silversmiths in Southeast Asia were actually ethnic Chinese people, and they might have lived there for several generations in, in say, Indonesia or, or um, Cambodia or so on or Thailand. But they were still signing the bottoms of their, say their tea uh, pots or whatever they were making, beetle boxes and so on, with, with Chinese characters. So today when these items are found, uh, particularly when they're found outside of Asia, it's automatically assumed that they're from China. And very often that is not the case. And there are even uh, very important books today on Chinese export silver uh which will show items which i i personally know definitely are not from china
1: they're not part of this story no so no they're not they're not they're items made for trade
0: n- 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 no they're not, to at, the all. West in not, this not at all but what they are is that they're part of the overseas chinese story but they're not part of the mainland chinese story um there's one book in particular which, which everyone refers to it's it's the it's called export uh, sorry chinese export silver 1785 to 1885. Uh, published by the Museum of the American-China Trade. Um, The authors are are Forbes, uh, Kernan and Wilkins. And this is the the number one volume that everyone refers to. It's now very expensive, it's out of print. But if you go to uh, page 184, for example, there's a lovely um, teapot or hot water kettle. Uh, And it looks terribly Chinese. It's silver, it's got a a dragon type spout, it has willows and, and probably the eight immortals or some sort of deities underneath and so on. And it's ascribed to being Chinese export silver. And, and I can tell you it, it's not. It's clearly Bangkok work by a Bangkok Chinese silversmith made for the local market. So, again, even in this uh, august volume, uh, there are errors like that. And one of the problems today is that when Chinese export silver auctions happen or uh, even some dealers are selling it, they, they look at the marks on the bottom and automatically, automatically assume that uh, these items are, are from China. And then the problem is that uh, people from China buy it thinking it's from China. And then the items are imported into China where they completely lose their context of, of not being from China at all. And the
1: history of this particular thing becomes diluted with work that's from elsewhere and Absolutely. doesn't have that same <coughs> provenance. <coughs> Absolutely. A- about hallmarks. A- yes, They're a signature, a Chinese signature mark rather than what we in the West would perceive to be a hallmark. but sometimes i'm aware that some english letters would be added when they were headed to be exported to english-speaking countries um just so people felt a familiarity and almost um a spoof of a hallmark as it would have been expected to be seen in western culture can sometimes be found on Mm. some of these chinese export pieces
0: yeah exactly that's a really good point sarah yeah um so to make a lot of the items more acceptable to the foreign trade and, and more marketable, uh, that they would put on these pseudo marks, uh, emulating emulating um, hallmarks from particularly British hallmarks, which are always seen as you know the best and and, and uh, the most pristine. It was a little bit like um, you know when you might go to Asia today and go to a street market and buy a T-shirt or something, and, and it's. Um, they'll claim it's been made in Paris and it'll say on the label Paris or whatever and they know and we all know that it's not made in Paris but Paris is seen as, as uh, like a, a good brand or name or a, you know, um, a, something good to be linked with to, to suggest quality and it was exactly what the Chinese were doing in the um, late 19th century with a lot of Chinese export silver they were putting on pseudo marks to to suggest quality and, and so on the other thing also is that um, a lot of the, um, not, not, not all pieces also um, are, are marked, uh, some, some simply have no marks. But very often they do have Chinese marks and uh, sometimes these are erroneously referred to as hallmarks but of course they're not hallmarks because the hallmark system was only ever used in the UK uh, when you had a, a guild hall, the, silvers, the Silversmiths Guild, which was charged with actually marking and authenticating the silver quality of all items. So everywhere else, we, we strictly can't refer to these as hallmarks. They should be referred to maker's. as assay marks or import marks or, or maker's marks.
1: Yeah. Different context to what yeah. we understand. Yeah. Also, i read that that um, many of these pieces are around 900 parts per thousand of yes, silver, is yeah. that correct?
0: That's, yeah, that's true, uh, because the, the currency, the coins, the Spanish dollars and so on, that originally were being used, uh... had about uh, a ninety percent silver purity the other ten percent would typically be copper and uh... so when you compare that to say sterling silver which is a ninety two point five percent purity uh... It, it's slightly less than, than sterling silver but even that is more complicated than people realize because very often people think that sterling silver means it's pure silver and that's not true at all S- uh, sterling silver is an alloy and as I said, it's ninety-two point five percent. The other seven point five percent is usually copper,
1: which gives strength. It if is. you want to it make does, a yes. very beautifully worked piece, and you were using pure silver, you'd find it would be damaged far too easily.
0: That's exactly right. Uh, it would um, it would probably um, crack and break, and you'd have holes and and so on.
1: I read. Also, um, when looking at the topic of Chinese silver, being aware that we were going to talk about it today, that many pieces were made to order as presentation pieces, Mm. and it's not unusual to find them um, initialed or engraved with the um, initials of the recipient or the prize that was being awarded by means of this piece.
0: Yes, no. That's very common, and uh, it, it's it's quite common to to find the name of a racing horse on a piece of silver or a trophy or something like that. Or there might have been an athletics club uh, uh, winner or, or these sorts of things. Or just presentation pieces. Uh, uh, another example is also uh, for for items of personal use, such as a visiting card case, which would have your own initials yeah. emblazoned on it. Um, often. Uh, the, you'd have these cartouches for initials or a name or or, or something like that but they were never engraved so it, it's typical today to still find them blank
1: with the space there mm. for that work mm. and interesting that those presentations and prizes were so far away from China but it's a really good source of provenance for pieces that were bought to be awarded and engraved for that
0: purpose that
1: there's a likelihood that there's a link between that source of production and that end piece.
0: Yeah, That's a great point because uh, with English silver uh, it's always hallmarked uh, unless it's a, a fake or a forgery. Uh, and and it's hallmark with a dating uh, stamp as well, so you can tell exactly what year it was made. That's never the case with Chinese export silver. So very often, the uh, the main indicator we have of when uh, something was likely to have been made is if it has a personal inscription and a date i.e. yes, uh, uh, I'm giving this to you for your birthday um, and I'm giving it to you in um, 1876 or something like that so that could be engraved on it and that's terribly helpful and and it's instructive because sometimes it can go either way. Sometimes things are earlier than you expect and other times they're later.
1: I find it so fascinating that the trade of tea in China can collide with the discovery of silver in South America. In this one particular place, the two objects brought about a whole wealth of art, which is unique to that time, that place, and those trade routes, um, bringing the raw materials that bring this whole area of collecting into existence.
0: yeah, no, I agree and it's it's another part of, of the story of globalization and trade which has been going on for centuries. And uh, certainly in, in the gallery here in London, uh, it, it's one of our main focal points is trade and uh, migration and, and production that's been brought about by these sorts of things so we're very fortunate here being in the uk because we're able to source a lot of our chinese export silver locally and of course it was imported in the late 19th century for, for use then
1: and very um, strong provenance when that's the way that things are sourced
0: exactly and provenance is always key it, it, it's 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 splendid um, very necessary
1: And leads to good choices and therefore great pieces for the catalogue each month.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you, Sarah.
1: It's been really interesting to learn more with you about Chinese export silver. Thanks, Mm -hmm. Michael.
0: You have been listening to the World Art Now podcast in association with Michael Backman Limited. To hear more, visit worldartnow.com.